0: I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos one episode at a time. This is the second installment of the Pada Bing PhD series. Topic two is Caravaggio. I traveled to UCLA to sit down with Dr. Bronwyn Wilson, a professor of Renaissance and early modern art, to get an education and attempt to draw a line between the work of Caravaggio and The Sopranos. As many listeners know, Caravaggio's work has haunted me in a good way about as much as The Sopranos itself. And very early on in my viewing relationship with the show, I drew parallels between Caravaggio's paintings in countless frames from the series. I am a Caravaggisti, at least from an appreciation and astonishment standpoint. And I can't help but believe that the show was influenced by his work. This was one of my attempts to assuage that question, if only for my own peace of mind. Turns out, Caravaggio was as complex, open-ended, and ambiguous as The Sopranos itself. And as you'll hear, the best part of this conversation was Professor Wilson making that connection on her own, unsolicited. That's all I got. Here's Professor Wilson talking about Caravaggio and The Sopranos. So Professor Wilson, thank you for spending time with me today to talk about this and indulging my questions. It's great to be with you here in your office at UCLA. We talked a moment ago off mic about uh, Caravaggio and sort of my questions. My questions were designed to be sort of survey level. I would like to go deep with you, but I want to sort of introduce Caravaggio to the world of the listeners. In general, in 2020, how do you
1: teach Caravaggio to students? It's a great question. And there are um, a couple of things, but I would say the, the way that I bring him into classes, a, a broad survey class that's on Renaissance and Baroque art, I introduce him in the context of gender and sexuality, because there are paintings that were produced for collectors in Rome where the idea of collecting Caravaggio's paintings when they have something that we would see as kind of homoerotic content, where there's men dressed up in bedsheets with fruit and kind of offering themselves and the fruit, but also withholding it. Those um, ideas around the... The male body and sexuality are things that are um, really useful for getting students talking. And then I also talk about Caravaggio in relation to violence. So I have a week that I talk about violence and I I look really at sort of over three or four hundred years and um, thinking about the uh, story of Judith and Holofernes, for example. There's two very famous paintings, one by Caravaggio, one by Artemisia Gentileschi that um, she paints um, in ways that are connected to ideas that he formulates as an as an artist before uh, before Gentileschi, and there are two different approaches to the theme of Judith and Holofernes, where you see very different ways of thinking about the this young woman who saves the Jewish people and the. Ways in which violence is described by the two artists are very interesting. And so students are able to think about the gender of the artist. They're able to think about the story. They can compare the differences between the paintings. And it um, it also resonates, I think, for students today. There's all kinds of ways that it connects to things like even Me Too movement. Things, a range of different political ideas as well. How so Me Too? Well, the... Um, at least in the case of Artemisia Gentileschi as one of the people who is um, painting in a way that is indebted in part to, uh, to Caravaggio, the idea of her strength as a woman and her ways of dealing with her own rape by uh, by an artist that that idea of thinking of, of violence in the female body and and female strength is something that is connected to is connected to me too so not directly to Caravaggio but with Caravaggio even the way that sexuality conveys something more about the blurring of boundaries of the body so not the idea of something which is gender as male or female but gender as something more fluid is an aspect that comes across in in Caravaggio's in Car- Caravaggio's paintings as well.
0: You mentioned something interesting, and I want to make sure we come back to it. You talked about Caravaggio and violence. Yeah. Of course, The Sopranos is a show that has not even undertones, very violent overtones. Yes. But I want to kind of rewind it back and try to be as sort of foundational as we can. You gave me a nice education at the very beginning that you don't even use the word Baroque. Baroque is sort of one of those kitchen refrigerator terms. But can you set the table and define and describe what that period of Baroque... Means and what part Caravaggio played in it and who his contemporaries
1: were? I wouldn't say something you would stick on your refrigerator as, what the, as Baroque, only that it's a category which is very capacious and can include a wide range of, of artistic um, styles. It can include a wide range of objects, sculpture, painting, architecture, and there's so many different practitioners who are connected with what we call Baroque art that it's it's um it's sometimes a bit too general but what i think about when I teach the Baroque and what it means as a, as a term, and I really only do this at the beginning of a class, I talk about the ways that Baroque is something that's connected to, there's two objects for me that are synonymous with the Baroque. One is the idea of a misshapen pearl, and that's where the term comes from. So Baroque comes from the idea of a misshapen pearl, where you have, instead of a round pearl, you have pearls that were large, that have um, unusual forms, They're, um, these were objects that were connected with with wonder, things that were made by nature but had these forms that were kind of irregular. And that idea of something that is uh, kind of a spectacular, natural form but unusual in its shape is something that helps to understand how the Baroque is different from art that preceded it. That is, instead of being something that is naturalistic, kind of copying uh, um, when artists were concerned with... Looking at natural forms, emulating nature, producing altarpieces with figures that are arranged in um, in uh, a kind of symmetrical organization, mm. those kinds of things. Baroque instead is something where you see something that takes you in a new direction. So it's often um, a way of involving the spectator in a way that. Um, animates the beholder. So as a viewer often you're propelled to move through spaces, to move around fountains, to um, linger in front of a painting and to be um, attended with something that is kind of surprising. So sometimes we think of it as being connected to drama for example, um, more dramatic action as being a part of that as well. so maybe we can come back to that idea in relation to in sure. relation to violence. But the other thing is often thinking about scale. So there's a, an immense globe that was produced by an Italian um, cartographer for Louis XIV in the 17th century, a massive large um, massive large globe, where the sheer scale of something that was connected with thinking about an expanding image of the world is something that conveys the the kind of the other side of the misshapen pearl, something that is immense, grandiose connected with the ambitions of patrons, the uh, worldliness of of um, of, uh, of monarchs and of courts. And that idea, those are sort of two ideas of, for me, of thinking of the Baroque and the ways in which, in both cases, they prompt a kind of surprise, or with the large globe, you're you're um compelled to walk around the globe or look from different directions it's not something that you control instead it controls you so that idea of artistic production being something that is um that is dynamic and implicates the beholder is something that is um is one of the things that i would say Makes me interested in the in the period, at least particularly in southern Europe during the very late sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. It wasn't unique to just Italian artists, right? It spread. It's, it's true. So, so Baroque. If you think of it as a as a style, as something which was, it's as a style, it's connected to a number of different things. In part, it's connected to a return to nature. So, after, it, so in the seven, in the sixteenth century, there are. Um, different mo different pictorial modes one of the things that you often hear about is mannerism and this is a term that i tend to be cautious about using because uh, again these general terms can they have an age it sounds like <laughs> well it's partly that mannerism sometimes conveys something uh, again a bit general but what it what it's connected to are um, it, it's connected to artists who were not looking at nature but instead thinking about ways in which they could play with the limits and potential of a given artistic form. So painters, for example, would often compress the figures into a very shallow space so that instead of you being able to s- understand that space, the artist makes you have to grapple with the ways that they've contrived the space and think about how they're manipulating your experience of something. Sometimes mannerist painters would use unusual colours, acidic, an acidic palette, colours that didn't fit Nature. So instead of, you would often have um, kind of uh, a vivid, acidic green, a, a lemons, oranges, colors that seem to be um, inventive colors that become something that is connected to artists highlighting the ways in which they're painting in distinctive ways. So mannerism as a word is often connected or comes from, in part, the word um, mano for hand. Yeah. So it's about emphasizing the artist's hand and the distinctive way that he or she paints as opposed to something which is um the renaissance or or the baroque as a large it sounds large like the cell.
0: natural style painting preceded the real mat Ma- or something yeah hand. so first
1: so yeah so that's right so so normally when one thinks about the renaissance one thinks about artists who are looking to nature who are um whose ambitions are to Go beyond the ancients as models, so they would look in the Renaissance. Artists would look to antique models, uh, where often the forms are idealized. So sculptural forms, male nudes, female nudes, where you have an idealized body. And artists in the Renaissance would um, learn to uh, would learn to draw natural forms, the human figure, for example. But then they would often idealize it and improve upon nature, and then. There's an interest in the artist's intellect, so this becomes part of the part of the ways in which artists sought to advance their status in the 16th century was by emphasizing their intellectual concept as a mode of um, conveying something of uh, the mind being involved in artistic practice. So instead of it just being artisanal practice, you have something that's connected with um, with. With mental agility, with really with me- with mental skill. Did this so notion
0: apply to Caravaggio? As it does. Well?
1: It comes back. So this is actually what's what's kind of interesting. So then you have so then you have mannerist artists who are who are playing with space, playing with forms, irregular compositions that are um, calling attention to artists' inventiveness, as I was as I was discussing. Then you have the counter-reformation. And so this is something that then becomes very important and is really connected also with what the Baroque, is, um, what the Baroque emerges from. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about religious history. Please, because I think this is something please. that's really important for thinking about how Caravaggio is kind of responding to artists who came before him and then also the ways in which he's connected with thinking about Baroque art, what his kind of particular... Uh, intervention is in terms of the history of of painting largely seen kind of over a a number of decades. So the Reformation um, is the split in the church begins in 1517, kind of seeds of it before 1517 when you have Martin Luther connected to the splitting of the church into what we would think of as Protestants and Catholics. And this causes great difficulty for the Catholic Church because they need to respond to the criticisms of the church. So Martin Luther was critiquing Rome and the ways in which they were using the papacy in order to be able to advance their status. So the pope would print indulgences. These were um, these were pieces of paper that allowed people supposedly time out of purgatory in order to be able to advance the speed with which their soul would would reach would reach heaven. And the popes were selling indulgences in order to be able to um, help their family. So it's there was a lot of um, of nepotism when Luther goes to Rome at the beginning of the 16th century, there was criticism about the ways that people were worshipping what were, seemed to be idols. They seemed to be looking at paintings and uh, and praying at the painted images rather than actually think about the religious stories that were, that were important. So this is a very condensed version of a kind of complicated sure. process of the Reformation. Um, but the split in the church... Um, meant that in Northern Europe, with Luther, Calvin, and other reformers, is that there was a move away from the saints. The saints were no longer seen as mediators between this world and the other world. There was a critique of religious images then that had saints in them. So as a result, there was um, the use of altarpieces that you have in Southern Europe changed radically that wasn't there was no longer something that was was needed um, there were a number of other critiques but for for artists one of the things that it meant is that religious imagery was subject to tremendous criticisms on a number of levels from one side from reformers and in particular the concern was that these were that artists were painting in ways that drew attention to their artistry to art rather than to the sacred, and this became a, a concern. So, the the main thing is that what happens is that the Catholic Church needs to respond. And you might think that they would respond by saying, "Okay, we need to do something about nepotism. We need to stop giving all of our um, relatives positions in the church." In other words, we should be we should be reforming the the church from the inside. We should be uh, attentive to the ways in which um what we 're now uh what, what we would call Catholics, we need to be attentive to the ways in which they 're worshiping relics, body parts of saints in churches that we need to um, we need to do something about this kind of, of religion. Instead, they create a number of councils. It's called, referred to as the Council of Trent. These were three series of meetings that take place in um, in a town, city called Trent in Northern Italy. And this took place between 1545 and 1573. And this brought church officials from, from around the world at that stage. And at these meetings, At the end of these meetings, they produced a number of rules for artists and some of these were um, rules that were connected with ideas about devotion. And those were um, a reassertion of the importance of saints. So the Virgin Mary should be worshipped, so should the other saints, so the saints become something that the Catholic Church decides to emphasize rather than pull back on. They also emphasize the need for highlighting the mysteries of the faith. So rather than pulling back on the kind of censors and smoke and the sensual experience of churches, they instead enhance that and decide they would work against the Northern reformers by instead um, highlighting the processions, the, the drama that goes along mm. with the church. And then the other thing is that the idea is that painting should be didactic and it should be clear in terms of its meanings. So what that meant is that instead of these Mannerist paintings with figures that took kind of deciphering, you know, what is the subject matter? Is it an entombment or is it a deposition? These kinds of, you know, subject matters for altarpieces, Those, the kind of ambiguity of painting at the time, instead what um, painters are pressed to do by the church is to paint in ways that were naturalistic, ways that would make it very clear to people what the subject matter was. So that meant no more palettes no more colors that were unusual it meant kind of returning to thinking about natural um, colors that were found in nature and it was all part of the idea of being very um, clear in terms of teaching the the stories of the of the church so painting rather than being pulled back it becomes even more important as a part of the as a part of the um, ambitions of the papacy to reassert its authority as part of what was at this time also an increasingly global effort to proselytize within the within the papacy sounds like realism was legislated then uh, it was it was and this is one of the things so realism so we tend to use the term naturalism but realism i think with caravaggio is a great term because it's something that as an art historian one tends to think of realism as a mode of painting from the 20th century so uh, also the end of the 19th century but um certainly i think that caravaggio and to some extent also anibali caracci his rival they were painting in what we think of as a realist mode that is um, more intense than naturalism something where the painting becomes a means of accentuating the everyday. So things like with Caravaggio's paintings one often thinks about the dirty souls of uh, laborers who are raising the crucifix with the body of Saint Peter in the uh, Taurasi tomb in Rome. This is a painting in which you see three workers who are Kind of tying and pulling up, they're t- they're t- they've they've tied the body of Peter onto the crucifix upside down. They're trying to pull the crucifix up, and you the first thing you see when you walk into the chapel is you see these dirty feet of one of the workers. Um, and you're also absolutely so it's something where those ideas become something really about um, about the street, about everyday activities, where the realism becomes part of the drama and intensifies the scene. So another picture which is um, I think a good example of this is the painting that's often referred to as the Sick Bacchus which is a self-portrait of Caravaggio and he's depicted dressed up as Bacchus he's not using himself as a model to be Bacchus, he's actually presenting himself as a young man dressed up as Bacchus. We can come back to that idea um, because I think it's it's a part of the story as well, but in that painting, um, in relation to think about thinking about everyday activities, is that the bo- um, Caravaggio's fingernails are really dirty. So you have this idea of the of dirty fingernails being something that's like a, a street urchin, the kinds of boys who are in the you know running in the streets of Rome, who would be models that they would bring into the studio and put into costumes in order to um, create. Scenes for, for making pictures. So, that idea of, of literally the um, tangible everyday activities that become a part of constructing these religious stories that then contributes to thinking about the ways in which religious imagery operates.
0: You mentioned a rival, Anibali Karachi. How does that work? What okay. does that mean to have an artistic rival? Well,
1: so, I think that it, in, in a way, one of the things that is, um, it's almost uh, a cliche of the fields that I teach, teaching Renaissance and Baroque art, is that rivals become a part of the way in which the his- their histories become told by their contemporaries. So the rival, being a rival with other artists, becomes a way of um, ad- advancing one's own status as an artist, and it becomes a part of the self-mythologizing of of artists during the it's period. Which is like with sports, right? Roger Federer and
0: Rafa Nadal, they're You can't have one without the other almost
1: now. It's it's a little bit, it probably is a little bit like that. And in particular, in the history of art, it's the way that their biographies get told. So there's a lot of uh, um, contemporaries. We would describe them as biographers, people who are writing just after the life of them. And they'll tell these stories where they highlight these ideas of artistic ambition through, through rivalry. And in the case of Caravaggio, he's often seen to be a rival with Annibale Carracci, partly because they were both connected with what we often think of as Baroque art. They're both credited with being important for a return to naturalism. They both painted in naturalistic ways, but Caravaggio's, at least in his religious painting, is, uh, well, in, in both of their paintings, I would say, they're, they're both they're both artists who work with realism and they're concerned with drawing upon the senses of the beholder. But Anibali Karachi is somebody who's much more interested in a classicizing form of realism. So he's, What does that mean? it means that he is looking more to Raphael, more to idealized figures, gotcha. rather than something which is instead about the kind of the street urchin, the prostitute who plays the Magdalene in a painting by Caravaggio. Was Caravaggio a maverick? A uh, maverick, yeah, I guess he was a maverick, sure. <laughs> I think he's somebody who, it, sometimes it's hard to untangle the stories about Caravaggio from the ways that he would construct his own, um, him himself, even through his images. He often portrays himself in his paintings as a way of um, highlighting his own persona, this kind of p- performing as Bacchus in a painting becomes something where he's, um, he's, he's performing and and appealing to beholders to engage with them in very particular ways. So, he's a maverick in the sense that he is, um, he is inventive in very distinctive ways, and that becomes really formative for for so many other artists. People come to Rome to see his paintings, the
0: Caravagisti. Did he invent
1: chiaroscuro? No. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, chiaroscuro, that, that's right. Okay. So he, he, he didn't invent chiaroscuro. It's something that is associated with him, partly because of the fact that he uses these very dark grounds. So the the background of his paintings is purposefully dark in order to intensify the, the way that you have the white flesh of the... The surfaces so it creates a three-dimensional character. Chiaroscuro is something that means from from dark to light so it's it's the idea of a transition from dark to light. What distinguishes Caravaggio's paintings would be the idea of tenebrism where it's accentuated so you have instead of seeing the move from dark to light instead with Caravaggio it becomes something where it's it's less about the process but it's less about the change from light to dark and more about the impact of the dark space and the luminous forms that are appear three-dimensional against that black ground. So you sometimes have figures in the back of the space and then you have these illuminated figures that are in the the middle ground or the foreground of paintings. And when I thought of The Sopranos, to my mind, that was actually something where I kept thinking about all of the, um, the continual return to the strip club where you would have these dark spaces and these white bodies of either the the women dancing and the, the men around the table so that idea of how light changes in the strip club seemed to me very much a kind of move that I would associate with a Caravaggio realistic mode of painting and I think even the sense of the palpable flesh of the women in The Sopranos that becomes a part of the, um, a kind of non-idealized flesh. Those scenes in the club, the way in the series it would go back to those over and over again, they are, they loom large in my memory. And I think it is partly because of the way that the these are not idealized figures, they're instead, it's about thinking about flesh in relation to to meat and in the kind of carnal idea of thinking of, of bodies and and um, the three dimensional aspect of that with the light is something else that I think comes from Caravaggio. So if you think of the not officially, but I'm convinced that it I has. Think right. that I think you're right, and I to yeah. the, <laughs> and the
0: producers and the directors. I love that you made the connection to the strip club unsolicited because, yes, what the show does so magnificently well is convey the regularness of life, yes. which is a direct quote from the show, in a visually stunning way. Yes, so you have these objects that are imperfect then you have tony and moments with his wife carmela just in the house the way that they're lit when they're talking to each other in the kitchen um, again it is this idea of caravagesque lighting right this this separation of the subject matter from the frame with light and i'd like you to talk about that it's something that a lot of shows that we see now just to post sopranos they really convey tone and mood, and it informs the script, it informs Mm -hmm. the actor's performances, just with this simple choice of lighting. And I attribute this back to Caravaggio. The inspiration comes from taking these objects, these, these individuals with dirty feet, right, but presenting them in this visually stunning way.
1: Yes, yeah, so I'd call them models rather than objects. Models. Because they're people, right? Just Absolutely. one of Thank those you. things that um, I'll put my foot <laughs> in my mouth for you once, I'm sure. No, it's only the, the I think that one of the curious things about Sopranos for me is the ways that there's always a sense of the women in the strip clubs as being something that makes one anxious, at least makes me anxious, in terms of the way that one might um, kind of question some of the morality of the, the kind of pleasure of looking in those spaces as one's watching those scenes. But at the same time, because they're not idealized and because of the everyday ways in which one sees them as human people interacting with other people, there's something about that 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 I think does resonate for me with Caravaggio's paintings in terms of using people from the street in Caravaggio's case uh, many artists used prostitutes as their models but Caravaggio often plays with that and was critiqued for that by his contemporaries, it was one of the things that he would, by using people who were working in the streets that became a means of Um, using models who were active in the streets, and at the same time they become then performers in his paintings. And so they're aware of the ways in which they're performing and there's something about that idea of the, the posing that becomes a part of what makes his pictures distinctive. And that seems to me a little bit like what you're getting at in terms of the Sopranos and even in subsequent Films or subsequent series in particular with lighting. In, you mentioned
0: posing, and the term that came to my head back from my art history days was contrapposto. Yes. Is that applicable, that term applicable to Caravaggio's work?
1: So, so, contrapposto is one of those terms that really just means about an opposition, and it's a term that we usually associate with a naturalistic pose where you would see an Apollonian figure, for example, like a, a, a mythological figure, where he or she would be standing with one's the knee bent and the opposite hip uh, right. open, right? Like Sandra so
0: Sandra Birth of Venus?
1: Yeah, so that you have this more naturalistic pose. So in other words, rather than just being a straight up and down figure, you have somebody who looks like they're actually standing naturally in space in a comfortable way. What Caravaggio does that's different with poses is that he is conceiving of his figures in a narrative not as... Um, not as a recreation of a specific historical event, but more as models who are performing those figures who are a part of a narrative. And what that means is it's more staged. And so we're aware of the fact that we're seeing a staging of a narrative that then we interpret as a religious story or a mythological or a biblical, a biblical story. But the posing is something which is more about, um, more about theater, so more like street theater, more hmm. like um, the Commedia dell'arte or the- theater that would take place in um, even theater today, that you're not trying to conceal the fact that it's theatrical, you actually enhance the fact that these are models posing and dressing up for the picture and then that becomes something that becomes part of the inventive ways that the artist can play with with costume and mix contemporary costumes with antique costumes, kind of playing with ideas about time in paintings as well. So it's, the, perform- the performative side of it is something that's, I think, really key. Mm. And it's not surprising that Cindy Sherman actually does uh, one of the most interesting photographs that, it, or she does many of these um, very interesting historical photographs and she takes her, she remakes herself as Caravaggio playing the sick Bacchus, where she dresses up as Caravaggio does in the painting mm. of the sick Bacchus. And she even enhances the performative costume aspect of Caravaggio's painting. So in Caravaggio's painting, he's has um, vine leaves around his head to create this idea of Bacchus. He's holding fruit that he's um, hold. He's holding grapes, kind of seductively, and the he's dressed up in a in a, a toga, but it's clearly a bed sheet. So there's it's part of this idea of like. Putting, wrapping yourself with a bed sheet and pretending that you're Bacchus. But Cindy Sherman recognizing this idea of the performative nature of Caravaggio's painting she uses plastic leaves um, and plastic grapes, the mm. kind of idea of even pushing that idea of realism even further in the costume side of it as a part of her um, playing Caravaggio playing himself as Bacchus in this kind of series of of connection, so it's the, really the, the, the theatrical side of it, and that allows a certain well. That's the buzzword here, right?
0: That's that's where this comes from. Just a black and white fundamental question. You're, you know, you're an art historian. You're a professor of this subject. Is there a nexus between? Cinema and these paintings—is there—is there literature on it? Is there
1: like a corpus of knowledge that sort of? So probably there is. I mean, I haven't really thought about what that literature would. I haven't really thought about what that literature would be. I'm but thinking, when I think about even neorealism, when I think about Italian cinema yeah. and I think about neorealism, this um, interest in um, in cinema in in Italy, where there was a a return to using people from the people from the street, as your performers, not using professional actors, thinking about real contrast of light and dark, using black and white, um, using the black and white of the of the film as a way of being able to intensify those ideas of both um, urban uh, the the city urban life and thinking about um, illumination in some of those ways. My my um, colleague and friend, Rosemarie San Juan, has written about cinema in... Um, thinking about cinema and urban life, and she has also written about Caravaggio. So I think there are certainly people who probably become interested in some of those connections, uh, for sure. Can you talk about... I don't know...
0: And forgive my naivete. I don't know if he pivoted from religious painting to... The violent interpretations, but can you talk about where the what maybe what inspired the violence? Obviously, the obvious underlying inspiration is the crucifixion, right? That is an Mm. inherently violent act. But if you can somehow weave beautifully a connective thread into this idea of lighting and violence,
1: so maybe on a very basic level, it seems to me that one of the things that comes out of the Counter Reformation is a call for artists to avoid extraneous detail so there's an interest in focusing viewers on the religious subject matter very clearly and that meant not having lots of peripheral figures things that might be distracting from the main religious scene and caravaggio in his religious paintings often um, does that and uses that as a way of kind of reinventing some of the iconographic the predictable iconographic stories so that sometimes what he'll do is take some take one of the the stories about a saint and he'll take a particular... He'll, he'll tell it in a way that is very focused but also um, presents an unusual aspect of the story so that instead of drawing viewers into the story by um, kind of predictable things that were familiar to viewers, one of the things that he does is he knows that you'll be aware of what the who the saint is and you'll be thinking about particular aspects of that saint's life, but instead he'll highlight something really unusual about that, and sometimes that's around the idea of violence, or it's a particular moment uh, that becomes um, violent even just in the ways that it's depicted. So if one thinks about the—we were talking earlier about the crucifixion of Peter in the Chirasi, um Chapel at um, Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome, and um, that painting, on the other, is fl- it flanks a painting by Nibali Caracci, which is the altarpiece. But on the other side of Caravaggio's painting is the depiction of Saul as he's fallen off of the horse and he um, becomes Paul. So he has this illuminated flash mm. of the con- religious conversion, and. There's something, whenever I look at the painting, there's something that seems violent about it, even though it's not necessarily about about blood, where you have this, his outstretched arms. When you enter the chapel, you're positioned kind of right where his head is, and his arms seem to almost... Um, extend into the space of the beholder beyond the picture plane, which kind of intensifies that idea of the violent moment of this process of, of conversion, or at least it comes across as having a kind of violence because of the, the dramatic action of the, of the depiction. So there's, there's a way that light ha- sometimes has uh, is something that's connected with... Um, with thinking about uh, a dramatic effect that one might think of as being, um, as working in the way that violence sometimes works by being surprising, so that we're kind of taken aback to notice something in a way that we might not have noticed it before. One of the stories that he returns to is the story of David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. And there's the famous depiction of the young. David holding an immense head of of Goliath. And the face of Goliath is um, Caravaggio's own face, so he depicts himself as the decapitated head of the the giant. Any insight as to why? Well, there's a lot of discussions about that, and I think um, one thing that it's connected to is um, an interest in including oneself in a depiction where you become a kind of part of a story and it becomes a part of the way that he constructs his own... Um, his own biography through his paintings. So I think he benefits from the ways in which he's associated with violence. There's a range of stories connected to him having potentially involved in an incident in Milan, which may have been... Yeah, he's known for being somebody who was involved in violent activities himself. So writers and critics would sometimes talk about this, and as a result, I think that it seems... um, I'm always cautious about psychobiography. I don't want to try and, you know, I can't ever know what sure. Caravaggio was thinking in his, in his head. Um, but pictures like the picture of himself as Goliath, I think, become something where he is... Capitalizing on the fact that people will associate him with violence, and that becomes something that then um, it adds something to the the painting. So viewers of the of the painting aren't just thinking about the biblical story of David and Goliath; they're actually thinking about the idea of the story of Caravaggio, the artist, as a part of as a part of the narrative. And in that particular painting, the the way in which David is depicted is. Is really riveting because of the ways that it's unclear whether he's um, whether he has an aspect of what he's he's painted in many ways that seem ambiguous in terms of his gender. The lines on his robes begin to seem like long hair moving hmm. down the moving down the down his neck. The physiognomy of the young David is. Um, Sometimes one might describe it as verging on androgyny. He's holding a sword, which is at the location of his loins, and so there's been psychoanalytic studies of his paintings that have kind of talked about about these, pa- these paintings in kind of Freudian terms. But what, to my mind, is interesting is how that idea of the sword being positioned there is then connected to thinking of the of his own features being depicted as the use of himself as Goliath becomes something where then it makes one consider a violence in relation to some of these ideas around gender and sexuality in ways that are complicated and <laughs> incite viewers to spend time with a painting and contemplate a, a range of, of ideas. So it's not just, oh, look how different this David and Goliath is. It's about... It's about gender, blurring of ideas around those concepts. It's about, it's about violence, it's about the kind of transformation of a, a... It's about a young man who's contemplating his deed, and then it's also about the idea of Caravaggio's own action of making the painting, and the blood coming out of the... the blood dripping from the head in the foreground of the painting. So it really confronts us as we're looking at the, at the, the picture we're faced with Caravaggio's own blood and and, uh, and features. Fascinating what you just said,
0: um, paraphrasing, that an artist wants you to look at their painting, spend a lot of time looking. Is that intentional? Is that inherent in an artist when they're painting? It never even occurred to me, but it's, there's a very David Chase connective thread here in that the show is now 20 years old, but people are still watching it, and literally this podcast is going through it frame by frame. And I know no one will ever admit this, that, yeah, I want you to be watching my show over and over again and pondering it, but is this... Can you speak to this as far as Caravaggio is concerned? Is this part of the idea that I want you to stare at my painting and come up with all of these versions and variations on what it is and what it
1: means and what it might mean and, and have these discussions for the ages? I think it, it's not something that is specific to Caravaggio. I think that this is something that artists are, are doing probably, um, it's something that one could track back okay. for, for centuries, sure. but it becomes part of painting in the 16th century in in more prominent ways. And then I think Caravaggio does use that in ways that you're that you're touching upon that are that are significant for thinking about something like the Sopranos, which is that there's a temporal dimension to the to the ways in which you're moved through the picture as well. Uh-huh. So if you think about David and Goliath, there's just two figures. There's the head, there's there's David, there's a black ground, this young figure. It's not a it's not complicated with lots of other figures. But the the painting requires almost demands that we engage with its complexities over time and work some of those ideas work some of those ideas out and that. so I think that he's very um, I do think that you're right that it's connected to something that that uh, and may, you know maybe it's maybe it's not just the sopranos maybe it 's partly because the sopranos was so important in terms of thinking about a new kind of of television which is about the series and what you get from a television show unlike cinema where you have something where you're following a narrative over weeks and that you go back to those same spaces over and over again and how do you continually reactivate our engagement in those spaces over and over again it's because of ways that um, presumably that Um, the the directors who are working with David Chase on the show, right, because they're different directors but each time that may even be part of what each director brings to to the story that there's, it's like taking a narrative and just looking at it from a slightly different point of view and every time a new director is taking the, taking on the story, she or he is looking back at what had come before and then just turning that in a different way. And so that process of seriality is, I think think that that's something that definitely makes sense in terms of thinking about, at least from my point of view, with what we're talking about as Baroque painting and thinking about artists that return over and over again to the same um, scene and how you can... Alter it, and I can certainly. Um, one of the things that I have done some work on is an artist called Francesco Cairo, who was working for the court at Turin, um, and this was in the 17th century, in the 1630s um, and 40s. And the um, the at the court, they were collecting paintings, and they had copies of Caravaggio paintings in the collection. This is one of this is. I think this is collect- connected to what you're just sort of some of the things that you're you're exploring, which is that this is also the 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 period in which you have the consolidation of wealth within these different courts. There's no longer kind of republics. Venice is like the only remaining republic, and and um, at least in the Italian context. And so you have wealth, and you have these people who are. Starting to collect paintings, they have galleries in their palaces. They are not only collecting artists. That that had happened in the 16th century, where you would have um, museums in palaces. People like Isabella d'Este had a had a collection of of paintings, where she would kind of collect artists through collecting paintings. But what you have in these palaces is. Um, uh, a real interest in developing skills of discernment. So as these paint, there's a kind of relationship between painters who are appealing to this new developing skills of beholders in order, uh, their ability to discern differences between artists and between variations on the same story. So there's a, there... It's, it's slightly oversimplifying it to talk about this being connected to the developing of connoisseurship, but it's a little bit like that. The yeah. idea that what you have with these galleries are these spaces where where the owners of these galleries would be able to bring people from the court into into the spaces, they would talk about paintings. So it really becomes also about discourse, about discussing works of art. And they would be able to compare something that was done in a Caravaggio then to paintings that were done by Francesco Cairo. And Cairo is somebody who looks very closely at Caravaggio's paintings. He studied the copies of them that were in the collection. And he produced variations on the same story where he um, takes the ideas of light the ideas of, of androgyny from Caravaggio's paintings and even the idea of violence so decapitation and he presents different he, he he makes several paintings of the same story changing them in each case and kind of playing with the ways in which they're responding to Caravaggio so painters looking at Francesco Cairo's works would be able to Recognize some of the legacy of Caravaggio in it, but it's particularly through the series. It's the fact that there are, you know, Cairo paints four depictions of Herodias, um, a a very unusual scene where Herodias, who is Salome's mother, puts um, a knife into the tongue of John the Baptist in order to try and stop the in order to quell his ongoing after his death his ongoing criticism of her so it's a it's a, it's a story of female um, violence against the the baptist and that scene he changes in different paintings always with Caravaggio clearly there in the background and it's looking at the sequence of them that you start to see something very interesting. So that idea of serial imagery and repetition mm. is central with thinking about 17th century painting and I think that's connected to... Love it. to yeah, amazing. yeah, In fact, you've just made me think of a connection which is another one of my colleagues um, in fact this is the work on Francesco Cairo, I first did it for a conference for her. Um, Maria Lowe who has written about um, horror, early modern horror, she did a, a journal and a conference on early modern horror. And um, it was thinking about some of those ideas that come out of 16th and 17th century painting and the ways that then that's connected to film, to cinema, and also repetition as being a part of that. Wonderful. Couple more questions. Yes. Okay.
0: He's classified, Caravaggio is classified or described as a shadowist. A
1: shadowist? Have you heard that
0: term? No, I haven't. See, these are the lay terms that make their way make the No, I,
1: I, It's probably, a, it's just something that, I mean, I am. Um, it's conceivable that
0: is he the best at it
1: technically and
0: in terms of uh, oh, I uh, see notoriety you're okay. yeah. is he the best chiaroscuro
1: you mentioned the term tenebrism. tenebrism is he the best in your estimation so i'm the kind of art historian who resists ever making those kinds of qualifying qualifying statements i would say that he is um, i certainly think you're right that he or at least what i take you to be suggesting is that he is the artist who is the most clearly associated with that idea of violent, violent opposition between dark grounds and luminous figures. And he experimented with light in order to create this effect. So he often has a raking diagonal of light, of light where light can be something that can signify some kind of divine light. Um, but it's something that then creates this you know, asymmetrical organization on the surface of a canvas that immediately disrupts any... comfort level in terms of thinking about where one should look first. And the other thing that he does is he produces, he used light, um, he would hang light above the figures that he would be organizing. So he would take these models, put them into a, a create, construct a scene with them, and by putting the light overhead, one of the things that that did is it created these um, very three-dimensional figures, but also with intense um, in intense shadows, and yeah, that yeah. creates this sense of drama. Um, so he staged that. it. Yeah, it's absolutely huh. about staging, about staging light.
0: You just said you're not going to name your favorite, but I'm going to just do one more fun thing. I, I can't do an episode without making a basketball reference, whether you like basketball or not. It's are starting five uh, on your team of painters. Is he on your starting five? <laughs> and can you name your starting five? personally it's a totally subjective ridiculous question for someone of your level of esteem (laughs) but I have to ask because he's a he's a name there's maybe three or four names in the art history world that have stayed with me for 20 some years and what do you say to that so
1: I often will I tend to have works of art that are my desert island works of art okay so it would be something um but I, I will answer your question um since I'm Canadian and British, the basketball thing—it's like uh, it's not something that's. But I'm with you on the uh, on the idea. Starting team. The starting team. Um, Soccer players on the pitch. Yes, I would. If there were, there's maybe a few artists who I would really make an effort to see the exhibition, and certainly it would be um, it would be exhibitions of Caravaggio's paintings. And in fact, I did make a special trip to go to Munich recently to see the exhibition that was connected to people who were um, painting and um, sometimes they would be referred to as Karavaevsky but they were artists who are kind of taking some of Caravaggio's ideas but then kind of reinventing them in in um, in ways that are extraordinary and um, so in that sense yes he would be on my Starting five.
0: And I'll I'll reinvent
1: the question a little bit. What
0: are uh, three or four others that inspired you to to reach this level and become a professor of art history? Influences, inspirations?
1: So one, it's probably these things, these things have changed a little bit over time, but I would say that I'm always intrigued by artists who don't usually fit into the... The categories very clearly. Um, I'm a big fan of Pontormo. I think that Pontormo is a very interesting artist. I um, It's really, it's very hard, partly because I of the fact that books. I'm... There's probably so many <laughs> names
0: that are coming through your mind right now. But there are, nothing the and, and it's,
1: it's one of those things where when... Um, you know i'm also a huge fan of Vaniboli karachi i mean he's somebody who i've been working on his work from the his work from the 19, from the 1590s and caravaggio's he, nemesis <laughs> rival rival <laughs> <laughs> i think it's something that uh it was one of those situations where they probably both benefited from the competition sure. right i think that that's something that becomes important um and so he's uh Anibli Karachi is one of these artists who's very um, also um, interested in thinking about ways that you can um, challenge some of the expectations for, for making pictures and that's always something that I find I find interesting Did he live a longer life? So no they uh, they very in similar their 30s. yeah yeah The one the one thing that I um, think might be interesting f- for for you is the way that um, this was something I was talking about talking with a, a friend just recently about the ways that um, Caravaggio's name comes from his first name is Michelangelo right mm-hmm. because he was named on the the feast day of the archangel Michael and uh, when you are when you grow up with that name. That means that you're thinking he must have been thinking about Michelangelo, and I think that that idea of how Michelangelo cultivates his own um, his own mythology around this man who never took off his boots, who uh, suffered for his art, all of those kinds of stories of the kind of heroic genius that are part of that myth making is something that then Caravaggio is. Looking back on and thinking about how he can manipulate that, and I think he was probably very aware of the ways that he was participating in this ideas of constructing his own biography and then that the some of the things you've been interested in around kind of violence and lighting and thinking about performing and the serial image serial images coming back to stories again and again and kind of reworking those um, those are things that um become then part of the kind of mythology of of Caravaggio as well. So I know I haven't really answered your question about about, um, favorite artists but I would say that they tend to be these they tend to be artists who are um, maybe not the well I was going to say maybe not the most canonical figures. I certainly wouldn't rush to see a Raphael show. The, the deep cuts, and I, that's, that's what I want to know about. <laughs> yeah. I, I respect
0: that. I love that. That's and that's kind of the essence of it. Like you know, you can ask a musician, you know, like what you know what made you pick up a guitar. You can, you can there's always something. Like what made me do this podcast is David Chase and yeah. the fact that he created this. He executed this 86 hours of uh, cinema essentially, and um, every frame is. You know, conceived with the utmost of intention and um, did it over a period of 10 years. And yes. it's a master class in yes. execution and in, in, in all that. And so, and that's that's kind of the essence of it. The last thing I want to ask you, if you'll indulge, is, and you mentioned this to me off mic too. I I'm fascinated by the art market. Mm. I know there's a disconnect and my question is gonna kind of have you address that, but Caravaggio's are in the news. New York Times wrote a piece about a $125 million price for a painting. Can you say anything about the dollar figure and then maybe say something about why art historians, why there's a separation between art historians I mean, people and people who work in museums. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, I'm glad that you phrased it that way about the separation between. Does that is that exactly? Res- it, that's a that's very useful. So the um, so as I said, I'm really not an expert in the the market and. Um, I mean, I know something about the market in some instances, but not uh, less well in the case of Caravaggio. But what I can say is that... um there's not a huge number of paintings, right, so that it's not really clear how many there are, but between 40 and 80, so somewhere in the middle of that probably that are attributed to him. Because he painted directly on the canvas often, he didn't do a lot of drawing, so there's not a lot of um, preparatory work as well that would sometimes be useful for for people who are interested in, purchasing drawings and acquiring um, acquiring artifacts for collections. And so that means that, um, oh, and many of his paintings also are in situ. So one of the wonderful things about Caravaggio is you can go to Rome and you can still go into churches and see his paintings in chapels where they were originally, uh, the spaces for which they were originally commissioned. And that's something that I think is not that common anymore. And it's really something that is, um, I think kind of wonderful about his his paintings is that they're not all in museums, um, but that's also probably meant that there are fewer that are for sale. And I think that Caravaggio is, um, there's something about Caravaggio that really resonates i think in the in recent years for all kinds of reasons that we've already touched upon and yeah. i think that his story there's something about the um, about the about this historical period as well that resonates even in terms of thinking of um of the there's there's been such an interest in Figures like Elizabeth I and thinking about drama, so period drama that 's been looking at figures who are really interesting figures in terms of their of their stories, and so in that sense, I think that he 's an appeal and If I were a collector if I were buying for a museum and you could get a Caravaggio, it would be a a wonderful
0: Edition. it would be
1: a wonderful addition so it it seems to me um, that it 's a central painting in all of the, in, in all of the museums that I think of. So you you asked me about, or why the separation? So it's partly that um, one of the, for, for those of us who were trained in, um, so when I was a student, one of the things, um, I was really a part of the idea of social art history, where one of the things you were, you were moving away from thinking about the biography of artists and just retelling stories of of the great white male artists, and instead it became more about thinking about the um, historical context in which these works were participating, the ways in which money was driving commissions, the, um, the fact that it's not that Michelangelo's a genius, it's that it was an opportune time for him in terms of who the... Patrons were when he arrived on the scene. That was so. Thinking about really following the money is part of the ways in which um, in which many of us were were trained, and that is something which is antithetical to museums that are funded by um, funded by wealthy endowments that are connected to acquiring objects that are prestigious objects associated with canonical artists and sometimes that money comes from places that are not always ideal and Mm -hmm. so it's if one is working too closely with the art market there can be a way that that means that the kinds of choices that you make the attributions that one makes might make for certain paintings becomes tied into the value of the work and it's just never been something that interested me. I used to be a designer and I was somebody who worked for so for 10 years I did design work and actually was first interested in Le Corbusier as an architect which is actually how I started going back to, to, to graduate school and I think that I was always more interested in um, how works of art function more than something connected to the biography of the artist and so for me the the split wasn't was tied into both um a desire to bring to light works of art that are and things that are interesting visual and material forms that have been overlooked because of the ways that we've categorized the discipline so things calling even using the term Renaissance art or Baroque art are categories that right away then exclude other kinds of artifacts that cross geographical boundaries and cross you think historical these terms boundaries. And these
0: labels exist to make it easier for the art market. Is that part of that? Well, at least
1: it's cer- there's certain. It's it's more. Co- it's that would that would probably. Um, it, it, it's more complicated than that, but I think that there's a way that those terms are really useful for museums because people understand them, or you can and, hang their hat on it. Yeah, and it's some, it, it, I think that um, that that's sometimes a conflict because students know what the Renaissance is. They they for them that is a term that means something, and then they come into a class with me, and I am kind of questioning what that. Means because of the fact that it's associated with people like Jakob Burkhardt and the idea of understanding a historical. The, the, his kind of understanding of the historical period is something that um, leaves out lots of lots of things and you know lives of women, lives of uh, you know artists who are women, uh, different ethnic groups, those kinds of. Um, though and even material forms that might not be considered elite works of art those are objects that have often been left out of those more um museums m- museums need to bring people into the to see their collections, and that's something that I have great respect for, and so it's not—it's it, more just that I think that one always has to have a discussion about these things and think about what's at stake in some of these some of these terms, um, and be careful not to generalize. So I just ask my students not to talk about, not to describe in an exam not to say this is a renaissance picture because what does that mean mean, there's so many renaissance pictures Mm. it's it's just a generalization so it's more about the um, the ways that generalizations sometimes do disservice to the rich and fascinating array of phenomena that there are in this historical period and the same with the baroque it's it's something that um when you try and use a term that's often a baroque is a stylistic term right it's a term that we think of as being um Dramatic, theatrical, grandiose—something that's associated with. Um,
0: I always thought of it as the resurgence of the Catholic Church.
1: Well, that's interesting that's, because that's—but that's, that's, how that's, I think but of that's broke. fascinating that you think of that because a lot of people um, maybe because actually that I think is um, is right. It's just. It's right, at least in terms of thinking about, about Italy and Spain, partly because it's connected also to the Catholic Church trying to proselytize and many of the images that we think of with the missionary activities of of the papacy and its religious orders, that is about... Um, that is about Catholic resurgence. But many people refer to painting in 17th century in the Netherlands as Baroque. Hmm. And so how do you link something like Vermeer with something like uh, a sculptor like Bernini? Those two, um, those are such different kinds of ideas. Or Vermeer and... um, Somebody like Francesco Cairo, who I was just talking about, those would both be painters who sometimes get grouped together under the idea of the Baroque. And so as a as a term, it's a kind of generalization. But I, I like your idea of it being associated with Catholic resurgence. There, I'm, I think it does a lot of good work.
0: <laughs> I very much appreciate the fact that this, it seems like in our conversation that this it's not so cookie cutter. It's very open-ended and very much like The Sopranos, the segue on, on that note, the show is open to many forms of interpretation and you can't really box it in definitionally. So thank you for weaving the nexus between Caravaggio into The Sopranos for me. I hope it wasn't too tall of an order. I think <laughs> this was an exceptional conversation. I love that I had 20 questions for you and I only asked two of them because That's how conversations go. So thank you for indulging this and thank you for being a part of this project.
1: It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have met you, Vic.